Hello, good afternoon to those of you joining us from across the United States, from across Canada and other parts of the world. My name is Joseph Wong and I'm a professor at the University of Toronto where I also have the privilege of serving as the Vice President International. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the first event in our four-part series titled The World We Want. The University of Toronto is pleased to partner with Zocalo Public Square to bring you this series a series that examines the challenges and tensions our societies face and offers critical perspectives on how we can overcome them and overcome them collectively. To do so, we look to the experts, those from the University of Toronto, as well as our distinguished colleagues from institutions and organizations around the world. It is through public engagement like this and the exchange of ideas that innovative solutions to our shared challenges might emerge. It is now my pleasure to introduce Moira Shouri from Zocala Public Square. Thank you, Joseph. My name is Moira Shouri and I'm the Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square. Welcome to the first event in our partnership with the University of Toronto. This series is also made possible by the generous contribution of the Consulate General of Canada in Los Angeles. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events like the one we're watching today. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. Today, we're asking the question, what would society look like without police? And the discussion is in the able hands of our moderator, Jamiles Larte. Based in New Orleans, Jamiles writes for the Marshall Project covering crime and justice. He is part of the team behind the award-winning database, The Counted, and somehow he also finds time to play drums and record music. Over to you, Jamiles. Thank you, Myra. I'm delighted to be speaking tonight with three thoughtful and impressive scholars on policing and criminal justice as we consider what our society might look like without police and what it would take to get there. I had the opportunity to speak with all three in advance of today's conversation, and I'm confident that you'll find the insights that follow to be valuable. Dexter Boisson is a sociologist and the Dean of the Factor Inwintesh Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto. He studies the impact of structural neighborhood and police violence on urban youth, and his work has, been sh has shown how neighborhood violence correlates with youth mental health problems, school failure, negative peer networks, and high rates of HIV-related risk behavior. He's the author of America the Beautiful and Violent, Black Youth and Neighborhood Trauma in Chicago. Rachel Harmon is a law professor and director of the Center for Criminal Justice at the University of Virginia School of Law. She studies police accountability and civil rights, and her forthcoming book is titled The Law of the Police. She served as law enforcement expert for the review of the 2017 Charlottesville protest and spent eight years as a federal prosecutor for the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, investigating cases of civil rights crimes by police officers. Sandra Susan Smith is a professor of criminal justice at the Harvard Kennedy School at Harvard University, where she is also the faculty director of the program in criminal justice policy and management. She focuses on urban poverty and joblessness, social capital, and social networks in criminal case processing, with a particular focus on racial inequity in criminal justice systems. My first question uh, is really a question of framing. Um, and I'm gonna start with you, Dexter. 
is it really even coherent to speak about policing when we talk about imagining a society without police as though it is a singular American institution? Beyond the obvious that there are some 18,000 separate departments in the US that all set their own policy, it seems like what communities experience as policing is widely diverse and may help to contribute to the shock and confusion that many people in, especially in affluent communities experience around these discussions, right? You wanna get rid of what? Like the people I call for help? Yeah, great question, and thanks for having me on the program today. Well, you know, folks experiencing, experience policing very different depending upon geography, uh, class, and race. So we've known, you know, for quite some time now that white Americans experience policing as more supportive, more helpful, um, the majority of white Americans and the majority of black Americans um, have a totally different experience with police. One that's bounded by fear, violence, and we can only think about so much of the recent cases um, in the news, Mr. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on. So the policing experience in the United States is differential in, in part based on your location. Are you in the suburbs, wealthy communities, and are you a person of color? So to evoke the words of James Baldwin, who talks about the many individuals who live in the shadows of the stars and stripes, the two Americas, there are really two different uh, separate experiences with police in America. Sandra, do you have anything to add? I agree with Dexter. Um, I think that uh, it's not, well, partly it's geography because we're so segregated by race. And so in some ways it's easy to target particular neighborhoods particular communities for um, more police attention because our, our communities remain hyper segregated in some instances, depending on what city you, you're discussing. But even if you look at the experiences of uh, um, black and brown folks who live in predominantly white communities, they too are also far more likely to um, have police um, contact or encounters with police because they are black. And I think that uh, Dexter alluded to this as well. It actually reminds me of the, the first encounter that I had with police um, was when I first lived in a predominantly white community right outside Berkeley, California. I was stopped because one of my neighbors um, called the police um, 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 to say that a black couple, an elderly black couple, um, had conned them out of money. And so the police officer stopped me because I fit the description. Now, I'm not quite sure how, as a 37-year-old, I fit the description. A 37-year-old who was dressed to go give a lecture, honestly, on racial profiling that day, um, fit the description. Um, but I was stopped. I had to show proof that I lived in the neighborhood. And then when I did show this proof and then continued to walk down to the bus stop, the police officer in her patrol car slowly followed me down until I got to the bus stop and then circled around until I finally got on the bus. And when I got onto the bus, I spoke to the bus driver. Um, he noticed that I was shaken and he said, what's going on with you? He's a black man. And I said, I explained what happened. He said, well, she stopped me too. She also stopped me uh, about a month mile up to, to find out because I too, because he too fit the description. So in community, it's not just that in low income, especially communities of color, there's extra attention. There, these communities are targeted um, for special intervention. It's also that uh, 
for people of color who live in predominantly white communities, they will, especially if those communities are fairly affluent, they too will get the attention of police officers by the bare fact that they exist in these, in these communities. So I, I agree with um, um, Dexter's assessment of this. Can I add one thing to that? Please. Um, I, so I agree entirely with what Dexter and Sandra have said, but I would expand it a little bit, which is to say, even within a community, um, whether it's a community that receives disproportionate policing or not, there are other groups that are disproportionately going to receive many of the harms of policing. Um, uh, poor people, but particularly homeless people, are the subject of an immense amount of uh, aggressive policing. Young people are always targeted more than older people, and especially young men. It's gender biased as well. Um, we have disproportionate a, a policing of sexual and gender minorities. And so I think we need to keep in mind the, that the disparities in policing extend beyond um, race, though the race, race is clearly some of the most egregious disparities we have. And those happen both within communities and across communities. But I would also argue that, you know, when we look at intersectionality and you look at all those groups that you mentioned, Rachel, yes. and the Black identity on them, you have a higher rate of policing. So you, look at, you look at sexual minorities who are Black versus sexual minorities who are white, higher rates of policing. Why don't we, so, so I think we can't avoid the issue of race in America. We can, we can, we can make these circular arguments around it. But very often, if there is an intersecting identity with Blackness, as Sandra said, even high-income Blacks living in a particular community but are Black-identified, they have a unique experience with police in America. I agree. And, and so in the policing conversations that emerged after Ferguson, uh, community policing became a hot buzzword. Again, it was a hot buzzword in the 90s as well. Um, and it was a popular idea that the way to repair this rupture between black communities and the police was essentially to create more positive contacts uh, between the two. In 2020, in the wake of uh, the George Floyd protests, it feels like a lot of attention has shifted from this framework uh, to one of less contacts, period. And I'm wondering what some of your thoughts, and this can this is open to the whole panel, um, are about the strengths and weaknesses of the community policing approach versus the reduced contacts um, at almost all cost approach. The National Academy of Sciences produced a report last year on proactive policing that studied a variety of kinds of proactive policing. And I'll admit I was on the panel, so um, I should you should know I was involved. But in studying um, community policing, it found that community policing is not particularly effective at fighting crime. And it only has a limited effect on um, community relations with the police, so community trust in the police. And so community policing, it's not, it's, it's not a necessarily a negative thing, but it hasn't had the kind of positive effects and the research doesn't bear out the kind of positive effects the communities hoped for. Now, it's implemented in all sorts of diverse ways, so it's very hard to study. But I think we should start by saying that hasn't fulfilled its promise. Um, and, and then if you consider the harms of policing that you're trying to reduce, it's not surprising that community policing isn't 
um, the best way to reduce those harms. It's not only not the best way to increase effectiveness or increase community relations, but it's not the best way to reduce harms. Um, at least contact has that impact. You can see why. I'd like to add to um, uh, an historical context. Uh, so community policing and, 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 and policing that is of that kind of variety, they, they tend to emerge or our conversations about them tend to emerge in particular historical moments. Usually it's after some, uh, uh, some kind of racial injustice. We see uh, the, this uh, kind of similar concept emerge after the riots of the 1960s. We see, whenever we see evidence of police um, uh, um, uh, brutally in, engaging with communities, especially low-income communities of color, that is often when this uh, we, we put forward, we roll out this idea that police can you know, engage with community members, they can have relationships, they, they can get to know um, Mrs. Smith um, and Mr. Jones, um, and through that process, create the kinds of relationships of trust that will produce um, better outcomes. Um, but as soon as the window closes on those moments, my, my, uh, my uh, observation has been that community policing ceases to be like this kind of front runner in terms of reform. So it, it, it almost always tends to be a response in that moment, and it seems to be used to quiet concerns about what um, about the, the kind of uh, experiences, the, the inequities that low-income communities of color um, often experience. So I see it. I see it largely as a symbolic uh, um, uh, um, effort. No more than that. Well, I'd probably come somewhere in the in the middle between Rachel and Sandra in terms of bridging those two perspectives. And I think when we talk about com uh, community policing, that connotates um, lots of different sort of meanings. But, but I think specifically about some of the, the models, particularly in Camden, New Jersey, that actually dismantled their police force and then built it up again from scratch, um, getting rid of the police unions which in many cases was obstructive to holding police accountable for misbehavior and um, engaging in broader sort of community policing models. Now, they claim that they've seen almost an 80% in terms of violent contact between police and residents. And as we know, Camden, um, New Jersey, low income, racially diverse, predominantly African-American. So, that's the data that they put forward. Uh, other folks um, holding different viewpoints have said, well, you know, crime was decreasing anyway. So it's, so it's hard to attribute the decreases in crime to, um, to community, community policing. But, but I think this begs a larger question. How do we reimagine uh, policing for the 21st century, particularly given the sort of racial and economic inequalities that we've, we've all started addressing on this call. Yeah, and Scott Thompson, the, the former chief in, in Camden who was a part of that, um, he talks about this idea of, of problem-oriented policing, right? That, that the police sort of exist as a, as a appendage of society to solve people's problems. I guess I wonder, and it maybe brings us back to some of the points in, in the first question, um, are there hidden dangers in that approach to policing, uh, because it makes on a you know on a very common sense uh, 
from a very common sense point of view, that kind of makes sense. Like, oh yeah, there should be a group of people uh, in society who, when we have a problem, we can call and we can ask them to solve it. Well, I think, you know, in terms of a problem, but what problems are police better suited to respond to? So I, I like to use the language of detasking police, you know, getting away from all the political nuances in terms of the funding. Detasking does not necessarily mean the funding, but it means taking away tasks that police are not trained for, not qualified to respond to, and putting them in the hands of individuals that are better trained. So many of the police officers that I've spoken to say, listen, we prefer not to respond to issues around mental health. We are not trained to deal with mental health. We prefer to not respond to issues around homelessness. We are not trained to do that. So those sort of tasks, could you put it in the hands of community workers, social workers, individuals who are better trained to respond to issues of domestic violence, along with some sort of community safety officer um, in, in the uh, situations around um, uh, substance abuse, homelessness, truancy. I mean, it, it would seem reasonable to detach the police and have better qualified individuals who have the technical knowledge, the socio-behavioral knowledge to respond to these types of problems. So I think when we talk about um, responding to problems, we have to tease out what particular problems we are talking about. When Dexter talks about, uh, Dexter describes it as detasking, um, Barry Friedman describes it as disaggregating um, the police function. Um, and one of the things that he, he notes in this incredible paper that came out earlier this year is, is that uh, there's very little the police actually do that it relates to crime fighting. Um, and that's not you know, their fault. Much of what they get called to do has very little to do with crime. Um, and so in relatively safe communities, maybe about 2%, 3% of what they do is related to crime. In, in neighborhoods that are, or cities that are high crime, you're, you're probably upwards more around 10% or so. So for instance, one study found that in, in Baltimore, a very high crime uh, uh, city, um, about 11% of the, the police activity was related to crime fighting. And about half of that was related to violent crime. And so if police are by and large doing things like responding to uh, uh, traffic um, um, accidents and those kinds of things, one could easily imagine other folks without guns um, taking on those tasks. Um, folks who, as Dexter point, points out, might be better prepared, maybe better trained um, to do those things so that police can focus on other things um, that they are they have been trained to do. Um, and, and so I think if we take seriously this fact that, that a lot of what the police are being asked to do has very little to do with crime. It, it actually, I think it should alleviate us in some ways because we're not losing, most communities aren't losing that much. Um, we could have uh, other kinds of uh, services um, replace the police in terms of what they're doing. I don't need the police to come in when I get into a traffic accident. I don't need the police to come and help me get the my cat out of the tree. I don't need the police to come for those those kinds of things. And then they can focus their attention um, um, on on other on other um, um, kinds of, of tasks, as uh, Dexter called it. So I think we should really take that 
seriously. We wouldn't be losing much by removing them from some of the things that we have them doing. And then there are a whole host of more serious uh, um, um, situations that we, we, we would also want more trained uh, um, um, specialists to be involved in. Here I'm thinking of of uh, the CAHOOTS organization in Eugene, Oregon. They respond to, they are primarily respond, respond, the primary responders to mental health crises in Eugene. They deal with substance abuse issues, conflict resolution issues, the list goes on and on. Um, I think it was last year, they responded to 24,000 calls. Of those 24,000 calls, only 250 required the presence of police. Um, it's much cheaper, much more effective because they're bringing trained specialists on the ground to deal with the variety of issues that police tend to deal with. And they do so much more effectively and they do so much cheaper. Um, you can imagine then using those resources that would otherwise go to police to support institutions, especially those in struggling communities. So I think that there are ways that we can think about this. Um, we could reduce the, our reliance on police significantly. I'm going to make a quick plug here. My my uh, one of my fabulous colleagues, Christy Thompson, did a, a really great piece on the Cahoots program uh, at the Marshall Project that I encourage you to, to check out if you're interested in learning more about it. Um, the so this idea of detasking, unbundling, disaggregating police function um, has really emerged as a consensus opinion this year on a lot of levels. Right there's. Um, many folks in law enforcement who I've spoken to are open to and excited about this idea. Um, a lot of sort of traditional liberal voices like this idea, and even many activist voices who would trend towards abolition um, are open to or, or, or like this idea. So I guess I wonder, could we run down some of the places where we could all imagine police function being replaced either by civil servants um, or potentially by technological innovations? So while, while, we, while we talk about this, I just want to throw out a factoid that I think many people on the call would know um, that the United States is the most heavily armed country in the Western world, right? So we have almost 320 million guns in the United States. So when we are talking about civilians responding, <laughs> I think we also have to keep in mind that we have a heavily armed populace. So I'm not shooting myself in the foot here in terms of going against some of what I've said, but I want to put that, that really important weighty context into the conversation. I actually would follow up with that too. Um, I think it's dangerous to think that we could limit policing to fighting crime. Um, there are there are times when we need to stop someone from doing something they're doing or require them to do something that they don't want to do or punish. It's the punishing them for breaking the rules that might be crime oriented. But sometimes we need to intervene in disputes that aren't criminal and still um, need to be taken care of by someone who can use force if necessary. And while I agree entirely that we can retask many activities to civilians, uh, to specialists. We can turn over some tasks like traffic patrol to technological solutions um, that may also reduce bias. Um, so I think we should push hard on those options, but we should also recognize that there are times when we're going to need law enforcement, even when uh, a serious crime is not at issue. 
And, but that's where I think that the CAHOOTS model comes back into play. Um, it wasn't that police were completely eliminated. There were 250 situations where they were called in because they were needed, but there were 24,000 where they weren't. And so we don't, I, I think that of that is evidence that we don't need them in at least some um, great numbers of communities. We do not need their presence in the way that we have relied on them and have come to assume that, that they're the only responses that would be reasonable. I think the Hoots model is a great one to the extent that it shows if you bring in people who are are skilled, so they have a medic, and they also have someone who is able to negotiate um, uh, um, in, in situations where there's high conflict, you can actually resolve problems without creating any harm and without bringing about violence. So to me, a, a situation, a, a, a service that can deal with those really difficult issues that you're describing, um, because people are trained to do so, um, I think we should provide space where that can happen and perhaps be ready to call on police when the situation uh, is called for. And I'm assuming that those 250 <laughs> incidences where, where um, they were called for, those were the situations in which it, it, it mattered. But to me, it highlights how infrequently it's actually, they're actually needed for that purpose. Um, so I, I get what Dexter is saying. I think that you know, there's no question we're one of the most violent community uh, or countries in the world and some communities more violent than others, but there are ways that we can approach it with, and I think successfully so, without necessarily bring, bringing in the police, who in some instances, and especially in some communities, actually create more harm than good. So I think specifically in terms of the issue of homelessness, uh, that's one way where this is a low-lying fruit, where police, where, where, where other types of uh, community workers, social workers could be deployed. And I'm a, a, a proud social worker by training, a former social work practitioner. I think social workers can be, and community workers can be deployed in those situations. In some issues um, involving substance use, um, I think those are also areas. Um, issues involving mental illness. And of course, we are talking about individuals not just responding, but responding, doing some sort of risk assessment before they enter into those situations and they have adequate support and, and, and some sort of uh, community safety officer moving into those areas. We have models like that in Canada, which have been shown to be pretty effective. So I think there are definitely areas um, that, that police can be detasked and other types of trained individuals can move into those areas. Almost all traffic enforcement um, can be detasked from the police. And that has advantages both in terms of freeing up police to, as Sandra suggests, do more important tasks, but it also has the potential to reduce bias um, because uh, the connection between using traffic enforcement for to uh, uncover crime and especially drug crime has been a real source of racial profiling in American policing. And so getting police out of the business of using traffic enforcement to do criminal enforcement would both reduce conflict in the traffic context and therefore reduce the need for police and also reduce the need, the, the bias in policing. Right, and you know, just going back to that point, um, there's some communities in America like on the west end of Chicago, where almost 70% of black men have some sort of criminal justice involvement. And that's because there's excessive policing in those communities, right? Where people, um, broken windows approach the policing in terms of 
um, more police contacts will lead, quote unquote, to the de-escalation or early intervention of crime. And is what, what is actually done is led to fragmentation of those communities because you have male bread earners move from within those households, which lead to a higher uh, rate of single female headed households and generational poverty in terms of, of one level of, of, of family disruption, child welfare, juvenile justice involvement, at least a fragmentation of the black family. So in, in, in poor black communities, what police are actually doing is policing poverty, not necessarily crime or the effects of poverty. So I think all these, all these measures make common sense, uh, public policy approaches to reimagining the police. Does everyone, do, and this is a question to the whole panel, do, do you all believe that the American, I'm gonna be careful with my language here, uh, that folks who do not live in the type of communities that we're talking about, do they have a sense that this is part of the role of community, uh, the role of the police to police poverty and to police blackness and to um, keep it away from them? Um, or, or is that does is that just become a police function kind of secretly and quietly without anyone really thinking about it? I actually think in urban affluent urban communities, you often do see an awareness of this role of the police in the sense in the conflict over homelessness. I mean, if you look at a city like San Francisco, you see affluent community members in recent uh, entry, recent entrance to San Francisco, calling the police on people who've often lived there for a long time, but are now on the streets um, and seeking the police help to um, reduce the appearance of poverty and also its um, manifestations on the street. And so I do think that, that it's not, that not all of this aspect of policing is hidden. I think in some communities, it's welcome. But I do think that overall, Americans are not aware of the full harms of policing. I don't even think police officers pay attention to the harms they impose when they engage in a, a, a racial profiling traffic stop or one that they perceive as a legitimate but is experienced as a, a racial profiling stop from the person who is being investigated. Um, I, I think that we have not addressed those harms. I actually think one of the reasons the protests are so important is because they make clear how serious the harms of policing are in communities that have not had access to that um, knowledge? I think it's a more complicated question than uh, response to that. I think, yes, the George Floyd incident this past summer, the George Floyd murder this past summer, I think it laid bare something that has been happening in Black communities for decades um, that was not caught on a video phone. Um, and, and many Americans were genuinely shocked and dismayed by that. And I think a lot of that drove individuals by the millions into the streets, even in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic. But I think there's also a subset of Americans that are aware that the function of the police is to keep poor black and brown individuals in their places. So I, I think about a woman in Central Park who called the black on the young, on the young black man who was bird watching. I think inherently she knew what the response from the police would be, right? 
And I, and I think, you know, again, in terms of when we think about studying while Black at Yale, there are individuals who are aware that the function of police in America has been largely to police Black and brown bodies. So I think it's a mixed bag. It's not a singular story. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with uh, Dexter. Um, earlier, Dexter said that, you know, police are intended to uh, police poverty. Um, and I think that is true. Um, low socioeconomic status, I think, is a probably a high predictor of coming into contact with the police. But I think a lot of this is about um, anti-Black bias. I think the George Floyd, uh, the protest that emerged after George Floyd's murder was a protest about anti-Black police um, violence. Um, it's specific to Blackness. It's an effort to confine, um, control Blackness, which is why it, it often not just happens within the context of Black communities. It often happens, it also happens to Black bodies outside of Black communities, right? Um, so black, Blackness is what police are following. Um, not just poverty. Um, and so I think we should take that really seriously. And then um, also kind of uh, 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 in agreement with uh, Dexter, I'm reminded of uh, the op-ed that came out right soon after George Floyd was, um, was uh, killed. Um, and this was by the former mayor of Minneapolis. And she said, she essentially said that she does think that uh, whites know, she spoke specifically about whites and frankly, specifically about white liberals. And she said that there's an implicit agreement. We, we don't speak it, but we know it, um, that we, we won't make uh, we won't make efforts to put into place truly transformative reforms because we don't want to shift the relationship between the police and these communities. What police do is to protect us from low income people of color. They keep them away from us so that we can maintain our communities, feel safe in our communities, hold on to the things that we have accumulated, hoarded, um, and, um, and, and, and we know that the police will manage uh, those populations so that those populations don't come towards us. And that the police often get upset with us because during situations like the crisis that emerged um, after George Floyd's um, murder, um, they feel like they then get left uh, to deal with the, the ramifications on their own. It's only the racist police when in fact, there's a whole host of, of constituents behind the police that support their, their activities. Um, and so I think, I do think People are not. People don't haven't been able to visualize the kind of brutality that Black and Brown bodies experience on a fairly regular basis if you live in some communities. But my sense is that they probably know that some version of it um, exists, um, and um, and and are okay with it happening to the extent that it protects them um, and, and their communities. I've had a number of, of uh, in some cases, colleagues who find really uncomfortable the notion of abolishing police. And, and when I think about the abolition of police, I think about what this would mean for the low income communities of color, um, both that I come from, but also that I, I care deeply about and what that might mean in terms of, uh, of, of being released from the kind of occupation terrorism that I think that often exists when police are in those communities. And so for me, it just, it makes sense that that would at least be on the table, 
But then when I think about it from their perspective, what I imagine is that they fear what that would mean if police aren't holding them back, that those people then are able to come into my community and affect my life in a way that would make me very uncomfortable. There might be other reasons why people um, don't appreciate it. And I'm sure Rachel has some, some good um, empirical evidence to support this idea that you know we, we need uh, police presence in order to kind of control people who are uncontrollable. But I think in the back of some people's minds is this notion that if we if we don't contain and control these populations, they will come for us. They will come for us and the things that we 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 hold on to. And I think we should we should take that very seriously. I don't think that there's this is ignorance playing itself out. And, and so the the Central Park uh, example reminds me of this idea. I think it came up in a conversation I was happening having with uh, Philip Atiba Golf from the. Uh, Center for Policing Equity uh, years ago. This that was the Starbucks uh, incident, if you if you all remember that one. Um, but I remember he used this phrase, and it stuck with me: of people enlisting the police as their own personal racism valet, um, or we could say, in you know, potentially in the case of homelessness, their own uh, classism valet. And so, I, I it, it brings me to the question of. You know, what would society look like if there was no one to call in those moments that people feel afraid of a social other? And is there a possibility that without a professional police force to call, people would be feel more inclined to take things into take their fears, um, their worst fears into their own hands? Could that actually lead to more violence? I think that that's entirely possible. What, what, what else would you do if you felt like there's a possibility that someone could come to your home and uh, violate you and you, you, could, you had no one to call? Um, so that is definitely one path. And I think in this country, that is likely the path that would be taken. Another possibility would be to invest in the communities where people are struggling so much where <laughs> that, that crime becomes something, um, crime and violence becomes something that, uh, that seems reasonable. Um, so we could, you know, buy a whole bunch of guns and do whatever we can in order to protect our, our property. Or we could also be far more fair than we are in this, in this society in terms of the distribution of, of valued resources so that more communities, all communities are far more stable and secure than they are. Because fundamentally what many of those communities are suffering from is a lack of economic stability, the lack of, of key stability and in institutions that matter, schools, parks and recreation, healthcare, food. If we provided those things, I suspect we would see a lot less of what we do see, um, but this is not a society that, that generally speaking, um, um, uh, invests in specific communities in that way. Um, so there, that path that you described, I think is likely the path that many in this country would take, but there's an alternative path and it's a path that we often don't think of. Well, you know, gun sales increase just before the elections. Right, and for that very sad reason. Uh, so there was a lot of rhetoric around uh, the others coming for you in the suburbs, right? Um, but let's be clear, there isn't less violent crime in affluent communities because there's more police. There's less crime in affluent communities because there's less poverty. So if we invest in the, in, the, in the social drivers of crime, schools that work in low-income communities that actually teach kids rather than houseware, warehouse kids, we bring jobs to those communities. 
we invest in mental health services and access to healthcare, we will see less crime and delinquency, right? So we, we are talking about shifting the paradigm away from policing poverty to investing in the social drivers of crime. So in affluent communities, you have less robberies, murders, and so on, because there's less poverty. Policing is not solving it. There's less poverty. Poverty is at the root of all of this. And as we know in America, that a disproportionate number of black and brown people bear the burden of poverty. You know, one interesting phenomenon, you know, Sandra mentioned that for some communities, the costs of policing seem to outweigh the benefits. They're not getting their fair share of the benefits and they're getting far more than their fair share of the costs. And so they, even in the absence of abolition, some communities are starting to invent their own alternatives. They're developing community me mediator programs, violence intervention programs that you know, it would be great if we would actually invest to prevent poverty, but even shy of that, we can still do a lot to reduce the need, the kinds of conflicts that bring police in. And so I don't think we should think of it as eliminating poverty or we have to keep policing the way it is. Um, I think we could do a lot in between those two right now to start reducing the harms of of policing and making sure actually that the benefits of policing in terms of responsive policing and solving serious crimes in, in uh, especially in communities of color uh, is happening in, to the degree it should be. And that, that all flows into what is going to be my last question so that we will have time for questions and answers. So uh, if you do have questions, please uh, start getting those in now. We're gonna turn there in about five minutes. Um, but one of the main points of resistance uh, for a lot of folks in imagining a world without police is the problem of violent crime. People want to feel like we live in a society where those who do physical harm to others will be identified and held accountable. Uh, but historically, police aren't especially good at solving violent crimes, and many large U.S. departments are lucky to clear more than half of their homicides any given year. Um, so to the panel, I ask, you know, can you imagine a world where less intrusive policing uh, actually leads police to getting better at solving violent crime? Well, I think, you know, a lot of the crime, as we know, it's solved because of community involvement in terms of a tip, a tipster, right? And in many of the folks that I've spoken to in Chicago in my research over the past two and a half decades have said that one, they don't trust the police. Um, if there's a need, they would very often avoid calling the police or if there's a crime, they very often would not report it because they think the police is going to implicate them in the crime. Um, we, we've had many of those all too unfortunate circumstances where you've had black and brown individuals call the police for help and then end up getting shot right, by the same police that they're calling for help. So, so there's a real legacy and a, a reason for mistrust in many communities. So if you're thinking about the majority of crimes are solved because of civilian interaction in terms of cooperation, tips, you know, setting off police. I think it goes back to the larger question in terms of how do we change the relationship with underrepresented, low resource communities to law enforcement. 
I think also if we have to take seriously that that's one of the goals of policing in communities of color, because you know if you look at the uh, the way these departments are structured, um, detectives are under resourced, they're overtasked, they can't solve the crime because the next crime comes on their desk almost immediately, and so developing more effective crime fighting strategies, crime solving strategies, um, requires some investment in. Um, in thinking about that as a significant goal, even in a department that's facing lots of other challenges. I mean, I think departments feel constrained in their ability to invest in crime solving, but that is one thing that would help. And clearly community cooperation requires community trust. So you can't expect that you're gonna solve homicides unless you build a community trust to do that. And that's just for homicides. But homicides is an area where we are at the rate of solving homicides. The homicides have shifted, so more of them are strangers. It's harder to solve gang-related homicides than it is to resolve, uh, solve domestic homicides. So it's also true that the nature of the crime affects whether we're going to be able to solve it. But we need to be consider that a commitment and a priority in police. Yeah, and so I, I would like to add um, that you know in low-income communities of color. Uh, the, the need for law enforcement is often greater because there's more crime and we've been talking about this throughout this program. Um, but it's, it's difficult to imagine how police are the solution to that. And I say that despite the fact that a, a probably a majority of uh, people who live in communities that struggle with crime want police to be present to help them um, to deal with these issues, um, but, but don't trust them because of the uh, historic nature of these relationships, which are which are problematic in so many ways. Um, so for instance, we know that the, the risk of being uh, killed by the police, um, it's one of the leading causes of death for young black men being killed by police. Uh, one in 1000 chance of being uh, murdered um, if you are a young black man. Um, and that is just the murders. It doesn't count uh, all of the untold number of beatings that folks in, in these communities receive um, and with no recourse, there's no place to go. Um, we also know that these are communities where people are harassed, even terrorized by proactive policing. Um, people are stopped and searched despite the fact that they, there's no reason, uh, these are kind of unreasonable and often unconstitutional searches and seizures that increases the likelihood that there will be a use of force and then people will um, be um, harmed physically um, and then psychologically as a result. We also know that these incidences where police uh, stop and frisk, where police kill, um, they have consequences well beyond the individuals and the families who have been who have been impacted by this. A growing body of research shows that there are social costs to the kinds of aggressive police action that we see in these communities. So that adolescents who are in school, their, their academic achievement starts to plummet, their educational attainment starts to um, starts to decline. They start to experience the emotional and mental health issues that are associated with, uh, with PTSD, with having been um, harmed in this way. And then we couple, and, and that's just with adolescents, we also see these kinds of outcomes with adults as well, right? So we have these kind of downstream effects that have serious repercussions for the children and adults who live in those communities that 
likely cycle back and have an impact on issues um, like crime. Um, and then on top of all of that, I'm gonna piggyback off of the comment that Rachel just made, police are really bad at solving crimes in these, in these communities, much less it's not just murders, it's all sorts of crimes. So they're kind of pointless in that regard too. So then the question is, what kinds of alternatives can we come up with? Because the series of reforms that we keep going back and forth around, they nibble at the edges, but by and large don't fundamentally alter the, the, the circumstances of people who live in these communities at all, which is why people feel the need to protest frankly, loot, um, to behave in ways that try to express the outrage because they often are too powerless to be able to express it in any other way. Um, I suggest that police are not the answer, um, especially to the extent that police are, are actually used um, to control and confine those very populations. They're doing exactly what they were intended to do. And if that's the case, we need other solutions to solve the kinds of issues that emerge within the context of these communities. This is why I like the idea of moving towards co co cahoots for some situations, moving towards cure violence, um, which uh, uh, piggybacks off of another, another comment that Rachel May made, which shifts how people think about um, and engage around um, conflict issues. There are a whole host of models that are emerging that allow people to resolve issues um, without the use of police. And we should take those very seriously because some communities, people are literally dying because they're not having it. Thanks all three of you. We're going to go to questions now and I'm gonna take one, two of these questions and combine them a little bit because I think they touch on a, on a similar um, components here. Uh, one person asked us, how do you think education level and emotional maturity of officers relates to reimagining policing? Um, and, and in conjunction with that, someone asked, do we have highly skilled de-escalation and conflict resolution specialists who are ready to hire now and if not, what can we do to create this new workforce? So I'll just say I can take that very part. quickly, and that is that uh, I, I swear, Rachel, I'm going to be done very quickly. Ron, Ron Davis, who used to head up cops, said the biggest the, the biggest factor that will likely drive down police uh, violence against residents is hiring more women. Women are as effective without the violence, and so we make a, we make a, we make huge strides if we just did that. I, I think that that's an interesting um, and provocative um, point. Rachel, sorry. No, please. I, I think it's a good one. Um, so, you know, we, we, that we haven't done enough work to know exactly how diversifying departments um, matters, but no department, there are departments, including major urban departments that reflect the communities racially. There's no department in America that can that reflects the gender makeup of its own its community. So if you're thinking about representative policing, that's definitely not happened yet. We haven't even tried that. Um, in terms of the, the issue of age or maturity, um, the evidence on that is a little bit mixed. It does look from the little research that we have that older officers use a little less violence, but they tend actually to be a little bit more um, aggressive about arrests and summonses or tickets. And so we might trade um, you know, some kinds of problems for others. Those are still harms. And we do want to worry about the spread of policing in terms of effect, you know, especially initial contacts with a criminal justice system. And so I'm not sure that simply raising the age of police officers is enough. Uh, but the question also included an idea of, well, what about the skills these police officers have? So what if we emphasized in higher 
hiring more in interpersonal skills, um, more in communication skills, and then also trained those into officers, then we might now look to hire the officers we're, we're hoping will be on the streets. Um, and that is something that I think departments are starting to do and should be increasingly doing. Right, and as, as we have so many different police um, forces, across the United States, Jamels, you, you mentioned that in your opening statements, we have so many differential um, police training programs. So there isn't a, a really sort of uniform training approach to policing. And I think, you know, in terms of screening uh, for police officers uh, prior to entering in addition to training, and also thinking about regular mental health evaluations for police officers. It's stressful. My dad was a police officer and I can't imagine what it's like um, putting your life at risk every day and not, not being aware or, or, or guarantee that you're going to return home to your families when you leave that house in the morning. And I think we need to think about mental health supports for police officers and, and having much more set of robust supports individuals who are doing this really important service in, in many communities. Yeah, and I, th I think what the questions are getting at to me are this notion of culture, right? Who is interested in becoming a police officer? What are their life experiences? What are their values? Uh, what is the attitude that they're bringing to the job? Obviously, that's a range. There's hundreds of thousands of police officers in the United States that probably run the entire gamut here. Um, but I, I think what what the, the, what the question we're driving at is, even if we, let's say, you know, you take X city and they abolish their police officer, their police department and start with a new public safety department, how do you change the, the mentality of, of who's applying? Um, how do you take potentially the stigma off of signing up for a job in law enforcement? Um, I certainly know, you know, a lot of the, the, I live in New Orleans 7th Ward. I know that probably not a lot of the people I, I live around right now would want to go sign up uh, to be a police officer, not necessarily because it's dangerous or because of the pay, but just because of the, the social uh, stigma that comes along with that. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering if folks have any thoughts about how we if, we, if the idea is to sort of shift the paradigm of policing, how we do that in terms of who is interested in the profession. Well, I think, you know, some of what, what, um, what's on the table in terms of, you know, um, reframing the narrative around police in terms of also screening and screening who even comes in. I mean, very often, I think the threshold for who becomes a police officer, I'm not sure how high that threshold is and what sort of initial screening takes place. But I, I think we are talking about a multifaceted approach, right? In terms of screening, public health campaigns, um, you know, the historical legacy of the police department with, with many communities is something that has existed for a long time. And that's not something that's going to be immediately erased. It's a long and, and slow deliberate process in terms of changing that narrative. But, but I think, you know, part of it comes back with the whole issue of transparency. When these unfortunate incidences happen, um, accountability and, and looking at who's entering the ranks of the police, right? Um, there, there has to be, 
there has to be a response on many levels in order to change that culture. I think the culture is also a product of leadership. I, there are many progressive police chiefs around the country who are seeking to change the culture of policing, who I, and many officers who identify a commitment to their community and a desire to do public service as what motivates them in the job and encouraging a mindset that emphasizes um, the community-oriented um, origins and nature of policing, I think, could help. But that's, a, a, you know, the tone of a police department is often set by its leaders. And so valuing those leaders and making sure that, that they have the values that re are reflect those of the community are important. Yeah, my sense, though, is that leaders change often enough and with a change in leadership you can get a change in uh, in perspective um I, I think that what um um Jamiles is uh referring to well when i hear your question i'm reminded of the warriors versus the guardians um distinction um not not that everyone likes that dis distinction but it does help to kind of imagine different kinds of police um and that increasingly or at least over the last couple of decades police have often been trained in terms of the warrior mindset and they come to think about people at least in some communities as a kind of you know an enemy and that they have to kind of take down and to the extent that we can uh, uh, socialize and train uh, police officers to be more uh, guardian oriented, that we could reduce some of these issues. So it's a major cultural shift in how police come to see themselves. And I suspect if you if you're you know if you want pe people who are more guardian uh, in their orientation, you probably don't want to have shows like Cops on that um, you know have these kind of hyper aggressive, very physical, um, 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 mostly men who are doing all sorts of stunts in order to, to protect public safety. Um, but even as we go back and forth between these different distinctions, I, I still come back to what does this mean for low income communities of color? Because for me, whether we're talking, I just don't know of a situation where um, uh, guardians um, um, tend to occupy or police low, those, those kinds of neighborhoods in ways that make it so that people feel like they are being protected and that they are being served. Um, in the community that I currently live in, I, I rarely see police. Um, again, it's a, it's a community that's relatively affluent, um, but I know if I were to call them, they would likely come and take care of my business. I would feel like they were my guardian. Um, in many communities, um, uh, the, the, the kind of policing that brings us here today um, is the policing where you know there there is a, a relationship between the these agencies and community members that is extraordinarily antagonistic and and it's hard to argue anything but that that is by design so unless we tackle that it feels to me that discussions about this kind of reform or that kind of reform won't make much of a difference we're going to be back here in five years 10 years 20 years as we were 10 years ago 20 years ago we can we can keep going back down um, the decades unless we tackle that essential truth I, I just don't know that this conversation will be all that different and and so we have about three minutes left I am going to ask you all to close with uh with the following question, one, one uh, uh, question came in asking, we've addressed a lot of current issues with police, but what do the panelists actually think society without police would be like? Um, 
I feel like I've made it clear what I think. So I, I'm going to opt out of the rest of this conversation. Does anyone else have any thoughts on? I think we could reduce police a lot, but a society with no um, government uh, organization um, to, to, to stop people from harming others could put a lot of violence in citizen hands in a way that I would be very uncomfortable with. And I think the risks of racial bias there um, when it, it, um, citizens go out and start doing citizen arrests in their own ways um, are, are very dangerous. So while I believe that we could significantly shrink the scope of policing in the United States, I don't believe we can abolish it without serious risks. Yeah, I would say that it's hard for me to imagine a US society without some form of law enforcement. I'm, I'm very much in favor of reimagining law enforcement, detasking law enforcement, but I think the issue of crime in America would not be solved until we deal with the issue of race and poverty in America and access to full American citizenship which means access to resources and opportunities and healthcare and education for all Americans. I think the issue of policing and crime in America would not be solved until we have real common sense reform that addresses those underlying issues. And we'll have to leave it there. I wanna thank you all so much for this insightful conversation. Um, it's really been a pleasure to speak with all of you. And thank you to our audience tonight for these great questions. Uh, the summary of this conversation will be online tomorrow and on Zocalo's podcast. Um, I want to thank Zocalo, the University of Toronto, for presenting this conversation. Uh, this event series, The World We Want, continues in January 2021 with an event asking, what could a new Cold War mean for the world? Uh, so you'll want to tune in for that one. Thank you again for joining us and have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you.